0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and all kinds of big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished people of goodwill in good faith. And it is an honor to share that our program is part of the Democracy Group. That is a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And I am so grateful that we've added a lot of new listeners in recent weeks and months. It's, it's really it's really awesome. So I have a couple huge favors to ask. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, So if you're listening, go into your podcast app, make sure you mash that subscribe button or follow button or whatever it is in your app. That that, that would be really helpful. That way you get to download all of our new episodes automatically. Another way you can help us is to tell a friend about this program. Tell somebody about it. Tell your Aunt Tilly, tell your friend, tell your Uncle Bob, tell whoever, because um, I'd love to include more people in these conversations. It's really easy to find us on any app by typing in talkin politics" And the "talking" is spelled with an apostrophe at the end and no G, T-A-L-K-I-N, apostrophe politics. You type that into any app and you should be able to find us with that big purple icon that we got. So last but not least, if you could take a minute to give us a good rating and write a review, you know, hopefully it's five stars and you really enjoy what we're doing. It, it would really mean a ton because it helps make a difference in terms of how our show ranks and is discovered and it helps get the word out Uh, like i said so more people can participate in these civil nuanced and fun conversations like the one we're having today with my friend lisa sharon harper lisa sharon harper is the founder of freedom road a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding common commitment, and common action. Ms. Harper leads trainings all around the globe that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. She's the author of several books, including the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, and Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All, which came out just last year. She also writes extensively on shalom and government governance, Immigration reform, healthcare reform, poverty, racial and gender justice, climate change, and transformational civic engagement, with her work appearing in numerous national publications, as well as her Substack. The truth is, Miss Harper earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University, is an Auburn Theological Seminary senior fellow, and has begun working on her PhD in Christian public ethics with the University Universidad. Did I get it right?
0: You did.
1: <laughs> awesome. Oh, my gosh. That's in Amsterdam. It's also known as the VU. Uh, Lisa has also served as Sojourner's chief church engagement officer. It's so cool to be with you in this format. How are you doing, Lisa?
0: I am excited to be back with you too. It's been a while since we've spoken and it was really fun the first time so I'm looking forward to this. And you know, we work together on a regular basis, so kind of fun to have the tables turned. <laughs> yeah, this is
1: really cool. So listeners should know that um after the first time we we spoke, I first learned about you. I think I read about you in a book I was reading and then reached out sort of cold. You were so gracious to come on the show the first time, but then I became I got ensconced in the work just prepping for that first interview. And um, and then reached out to you afterwards and said I I love to see more and then we had, we just long story short we ended up working together so it's uh, you're you're one of my um I would say of 2022 you're my favorite new friend and I'm so glad that we have a relationship oh now Oh
0: my gosh <laughs> that's a high compliment because I know that you make friends a lot and fast and so. You know, thank you. I appreciate that. It's a
1: really meaningful <laughs> friendship to me. So I'm so glad that that this, um, that, uh, you know, we're we're doing, collaborating together and and we're friends and, and now that we're doing this, we're doing this thing together. So I thought a good place to start would be to ask you, who was Fortune?
0: Hmm. Well, Fortune Game McGee was my um, 11 times great-grandmother who was, I'm sorry, 10 times great-grandmother, 11 times great-grandmother was Maudlin McGee, um, and 11 times great-grandfather was Sambo Game. They were the parents of Fortune Game McGee, born on the Eastern shore of Maryland, circa 1687. And um, she, in her body, being the product of an interracial union, not a marriage, they had an affair, a white woman, black man in this colonial era, She bore the brunt of the second ever race law on this land because that law was formed in Maryland in response to really kind of a flood of white women marrying and having children with enslaved black men. And so the planter class, which was, you know, white men, they were like, oh, no, we can't have this because, you know, it bruises our egos. And it also confused the racial caste system they were developing with all these mixed race kids running around. They said, "Okay, so in order to stop this flood of um, of mixed race kids running around from the product of white women and black men, we're gonna we're gonna deem we're gonna like pass a law that says, in 1664, if any white woman marries an enslaved black man and has children by that man, she herself will be enslaved to her husband's master until her husband's death, and her children will be enslaved in perpetuity." But by the time that Fortune was born, about 23 years later, after that that law was created, um, it had shaken out over time to say that if you were born to a white woman, you could not be enslaved. But if your father was black, then you would definitely be indentured. So um, post-haste, I mean, at 14 years old, she was hauled into court. We don't really know anything about her life up to 14, except that she was likely Indentured by the parish, by the church parish, uh, until that time. But she was indentured to um, Mary Day in 1705, and um, the Day family then indentured two successive generations after uh, after fortune. And turns out, I have their DNA in me. Mm yeah. and and you know, you would never see any men listed in the in the genealogy that has been uncovered through court records and court documents because every generation was hauled into court to be indentured. But you know because of the laws that if they were um the product of an illegitimate um union while the mother was indentured, then they were going to be indentured as well, which that is what happened. And because you find day, DNA in me, likely they were raped by the day men in the family or had affairs with the day we don't really know um with the day men in the family but the bottom line is that there was there was some hinky going on yeah you know now
1: i as i read through that book last year it 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 just struck me how much work went into constructing the history this historical background so, what are you a trained historian? I know you have a lot of education, but are you a trained historian, <laughs> archaeologist? Like, what? How? How did you put all this together?
0: Mm. Well, I mean, a lot of it, honestly, when you're doing genealogy, you are doing the work of history. You're actually looking at at primary documents. You're looking at um, primary and secondary. You're looking at census documents and immigration man you know ship manifests, immigration lists. I mean, all of it. And so, in just trying to figure out the story of my family. I came across all of these primary documents and also the work of other genealogists who themselves archived primary documents and, you know, listed all the information they found when looking Um, in terms of Fortune's story. The only reason I was able to go back that far is because fortune's mother was white because she was white. um, They were documented. They were well-documented. If fortune's mother was black, she would not have been documented anywhere. And in fact, around that same time that just soon after Fortune was first indentured in 1705, um, the legislature decided to pass a law that they were then finally going to document the births and deaths of all of the citizens in Maryland. But what they decided to do, they said explicitly the white citizens because other people are not worth the trouble. That is what they said. It's not worth the trouble. So because it just wasn't worth the trouble. People are just not like there's the record of their lives was erased from the record. So I had the fortune of having my family traced back to a white woman. And that horrible fortune is what made me able to just um, stumble on the work of a genealogist who put together all of the free black families in Maryland, Delaware, North Carolina, South Carolina and Virginia. And he was able to do that. And what he found was that they all traced back to white women. That's how he was able to do that. So in mixed race marriages. So what I did with Fortune though, was I decided not to stop with Fortune Gay McGee's story. Although when I saw that her her story intersected with those first race laws, I realized, oh, this is much bigger than just my own family story. This, isn't, this is an American story. This actually tells the story of race in America. So I decided to go through not all, but most of the successive generations that came after and ask, what was their intersection with American history? Um, how can we learn more about, how can I learn more about them by knowing American history, knowing their context? If I don't know their details, as was the case for most of the rest of my family because they were enslaved, or and um, one strain of the family, chapter two talks about, the folklore around the family having connection um, to the Cherokee Trail of Tears and um, to the story of the Chickasaw Trail of Tears as well. Um, Well, in in researching that, I found more American history because the history is really truly hidden in the details. And what we're normally given is that overarching store of wars and treaties, not the story of people. So in looking at my family's story, um, I found American history,
1: and it's not just centuries-old history. No, the, right, it's recent right. history. Your was it your grandfather, your grand great grandfather who owned, uh, who was a, a, a you know property owner in that neighborhood in Philadelphia where you're actually living now. You're but but there yeah. was legislation um, and and things happened. Highways were built, and all of a sudden, your family's uh, fortunes, if you will, turned. Yeah. Could you share some of that?
0: Yeah, well, basically what what you're naming is the story of Hiram Lawrence. So chapter two um, goes into the story of Hiram's father, actually. But his father, Henry, um, was a Civil War veteran. He was caught in that post-Civil War era where identity is being reshaped in America because the relationship between races is being reshaped after the Civil War. And he then, according to the family story, was chased out of Kentucky and moved right across the river into Rockport, um, Indiana, um, where he and his wife, Harriet, had had Hiram, my great-grandfather. But it turns out and this, I didn't even know when I wrote the book, I found this out later, literally like right after writing the book, I found out that there was this big racial pogrom that actually happened around Rockport, but it wasn't, it was actually all of these towns throughout Indiana. Indiana basically became like a sundown state. There were multiple cities and towns in Indiana that black people couldn't be in after dark and Rockport became one of those towns. So um, Henry was chased out of Kentucky by the Klan um, and moved across the river into Rockport, which was a safe haven for him. But then Hiram ended up having to run from Rockport in order to survive as a Black man and made his way to Philadelphia, where circa 1910, 1900, he landed and um, he became a mail clerk um, and he became then a mail carrier. And by 1950, five decades later, he becomes the supervisor of the mail clerks in the central office of the US Postal Office in Philadelphia. I'm like, I'm so proud of my great-grandpa. That's my great-grandpa, black <laughs> man, right? So what? He's a supervisor of the mail clerks. And um and black and as he would say, black and Cherokee, right? And so he he then suffered eminent domain because in the 1950s when he gained that that money he saved his money and he bought a bunch of homes in this neighborhood that was called elmwood and it was over by the by the philadelphia airport and it was marshland that he and his neighbors built up and he had several homes they were these nice homes with porches my mom visited many times as a child and she would go for walks with her grandfather in um in the tall marsh Grass, and they would sit, um, you know, we cross-legged Indian style, and he would tell them stories, you know, of of the of the people and of the olden times, and that's her memory. And they would literally sit there drinking Coca Cola. <laughs> I have I have pictures, and then the city came and forced the black everybody in that community, which was a black community, to move, um, paying them only pennies on the dollar for what their homes were worth. So while he owned what my mom says was like a whole block of homes, or at least several homes in that community um, that he used to house people coming streaming north in the Great Migration, he only, from that money they paid him, he only had enough to buy one home. And in that home in South Philadelphia, which is about a block away from where I live now, um, he housed three generations in that one home, in a three-story house, um, much like the house I live in right now that I'm sitting in. Where on the top story, you had one generation, middle story, you had another generation, bottom floor, you had another generation. And so for about 70 years, my family lived right here in South Philadelphia. And, you know, eventually there were other homes that were that were bought um, by Hiram and then, you know, given to my grandfather. And they lived in those homes. That house is about it. They're literally all within a block of each other. So when I started researching um, Hiram's land in Elmwood to try to find it. I got inspired and I, I felt, I actually felt Hiram calling me back to this land, saying, mm. This is your birthright. Come back, come back to this land. And I heard him say, you know, in my mind's ear, I heard my ancestors say to me, If I can do it, you can do it. So I had been a renter my entire life. I, I really had no intention of ever buying a home. Um, but in the middle of COVID, my little three-room apartment in DC was feeling super cramped. And I realized I need more space. And for the money, Philadelphia was a much better, a better deal than trying to find um, something for the same cost down in DC. And the fact that my ancestors were calling me was like, you know, it sealed the deal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I relate to some of that. I had one moment uh, that sort of overlaps with what you're talking about. My grandmother, um, as you know, I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Um, um came over from Chernyostrov, Ukraine. Uh, they landed on Ellis Island on March 3rd, 1921. And the story that I'd always heard is that my Baba, who uh, which is Yiddish for grandmother, um, mm-hmm. and Aunt Rosie were the kids, and they had a baby brother named Usher. Um, mm-hmm. but Usher was uh became sick on the um on the ship uh, that that uh, brought them here from Amsterdam, actually, oh, um, wow. they 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 took the boat from Amsterdam. He became sick on the on the boat, and then he ultimately died on Ellis Island. But my grandmother, um, wow, the last sorry, I, don't know, I get emotional tragic. about this.
0: I mean, really,
1: the last two years of Bob's life, she had uh, a theory that Usher was actually kidnapped um, and put up for adoption. So we finally, my uh, cousin Sheila, who's actually her, uh, Sheila and the Warshavskis live in Israel and they've actually been on this this show. So we told the story of the Mishpacha. Uh, Sheila was doing some of this work on our family and she learned that no, indeed, Usher died on Ellis Island and she found the burial plot for him on Staten Island. Oh, wow. And when I learned this, as as I'm getting emotional now, just re- reflecting on it, I cried my eyes out and, and my, my kids were little at the time. I think it was Jackie boy who walked in daddy, why are you crying? And I just told him the story of our family. So I bring that up. Did you have moments when you discovered uh, these details? I mean, down to like, there are some details, like down to the literally the landscape of the neighborhood that was changed. Did you, did you have some of those moments?
0: I did. I had several of those moments while writing fortune. Um, You know, The first time that I just literally wept was when I realized, first of all, when I did that DNA matching thing that you can do on Ancestry, and they've made it much more difficult now. You wouldn't even see it. If you were to look at my DNA, you wouldn't see any connections to any of these people because they've made it more difficult to trace like distant, like your distant relatives. They only show you up to like, I think the eighth generation. And these are like 10th and 11th generation people. And some people say only the fifth generation. But when I started, they weren't doing that. So you could actually see where you had matches with with people with the same surnames in their family trees going way, way back. So I I thank God I documented it and you know, and I saw that there was there was day DNA in me and also Fooks DNA. Anne Fuchs was the person that Sarah Fortune, Fortune Gay McGee's daughter, she changed her last name to her mother's first name, taking her mother as her legacy. Isn't that something? Mm. Um but in those, in those court records, I, it was clear that, you know, she was indentured to the Fuchs family. The Fuchs family was this like gentry class family. They were, they were literally courtiers in the court of King Henry the King Henry the They were, they literally stretched back to William the Conqueror. They were fighting alongside William the Conqueror in 1066. Right. So I'm like, Whoa, like this is a family, right? So They were, so Sarah was indentured to that family and that family was in me. So when I'm seeing that Day family is in me and the Fuchs family is in me, and these are the two families that stretch back that far, all of a sudden I realized that's why there's no men listed in any of the court records. The law said that if a man had an illegitimate child, by an indentured servant or a male servant had an indeligibility, then they, they would be indentured as well, right? So the woman usually got about another three to four to seven years on her term, on her indenturing term if she had a, a child outside of marriage while indentured. But it was according to the law that the men, the man who impregnated this woman should also, but there was never any man listed with them. And I think it's because the family was hiding the fact that the men in their lives were the indenturing men, the gentry class who were used to taking, who were used to owning everyone and everything and being entitled to everything and everybody around them. Mm. So, what I realized is that my ancestors were, in some ways, among the first to be used as breeders um breeding free labor because that's what the law encouraged because if they were to sire a child from one of their indentured servants that child would actually become their servant for another 21 years not 31 by the time sarah was around because the man would have to be black if the man was black the child would be indentured for 31 years if the man was white the child would be indentured for 21 years. So the math works out that this was likely a white father. And so they were indentured for 21 years. Um, Thankfully, though, indenture is not enslavement. It was all, was like enslavement in every way, but one. Um, They were whipped. They were drawn and quartered if they tried to escape. They were Um, hung by their ankles or by their wrists in torture. They had limbs cut off, they had ears cut off, they had hands cut off um, for infractions. But the one thing that was different was that there was a timestamp. At the end of their time, they would be set free. And that is what happened eventually for Sarah's children and for Sarah and for Fortune. They were eventually set free. And there's this incredible deed that is that I found it's the deed to Sarah's sister's land. Sarah's sister Betty inherited land from the day family. They actually they actually willed the Day Scott, one of the the brothers or the sons of the family, willed land to Betty, um said you have to pay for it. pay the rest of what is owed on it in order to get this land. And so she had that land by by 1756, this black woman owned land in on the eastern shore of maryland and i went and found that land and stood on it and paid homage to her and it was beautiful land wow. beautiful land and so there's a record actually in the tax um the tax collector's records um that that he tried to collect an extra black woman's tax on her land at some point um in the late 1700s and she refused And I see her, I kind of have this picture in my head of her coming out with a shotgun, just saying, get off my land. I'm not paying this. And it was an actual black woman's tax. Like a free black woman had to pay an extra tax to own land. And she said, I'm not paying it. So what he said was Betty game of the fortune game stock, which is the same, you know, fortune McGee game, game McGee. She was, she refused to pay, pay the tax on the land. Wow. And so, yeah, that's that's my stock. That's my people.
1: <laughs> I, see, I see a movie. I see a screenplay in your future.
0: <laughs> you know, honestly, I saw it too as I was writing the book. I could totally see that.
1: Yeah. Now, as you're sharing your history, your family's history, what also occurs to me is that, fast forward to today, mm-hmm. uh, there are state legislatures and governors that are signing bills into law and many states around the country now, that you must be seeing the parallels and the oh the God. echoes from our history. Is that fair to say? Or
0: yes, yes. So what I learned was, you know, we've, we've spoken a lot about Fortune and her and her family, but when you flash forward to the enslaved um, branches of my family, Leah Ballard, um, and you know, she was there when the Emancipation Doc, I mean, Declaration was was sounded. She was in South Carolina on a plantation, enslaved, and she saw freedom. She she lived um, for the first 20-some-odd years of her life, 25 years of her life, as an enslaved woman had had at least five children while enslaved, none of whom survived, or they were sold into the Deep South, and she never, ever saw them again. And yet, she saw freedom, and she saw the backlash against freedom, she saw the compromise of 1877 and 1876 with the 1876 contended presidential election in order for uh, the Republicans to say, we're going to win. We actually, to, to maintain their winning of, of that election, which was contested just like our last election, right? They said, we'll tell you what, um, Democrats were the Southerners at that time. They were the ones who were, they ironically, they were they were the the Confederates. They were the former Confederates. And they said, well, tell you what, we will let you have the South if you let our Republican president maintain the presidential seat. So they seated the South. They pulled the federal troops out of the South. And that is when the KKK just rose up and the lynching rose up within about a decade. You had um, thousands of people being lynched every, I mean, every few years. Um, and 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 you you saw the the taking away of rights one by one um, because of this this pact, this compromise that the North made with the South that said, We're gonna we're gonna allow the southern states to have their own right to govern their own citizens in their own way. And what their own way was was terror. That was their way, their way was the squashing, the quelching, the hemming in and the containing of black freedom. And because they saw black freedom as a direct threat to their own. So it's in those years that you see Leah Ballard's granddaughter, um, Lizzie, my great-grandmother, run from the South and she ran North into First in Washington DC where she stayed with friends likely in the U street district which is the black historic black district near Howard University and others um other other historic areas and and then eventually she made her way into Philadelphia and um and that's where you know her her daughter Willa Lawrence Willa Jenkins actually but um that's where Willa then eventually met Junius Lawrence the son of Hiram Lawrence And they became my grandparents and they begat Sharon Lawrence, um, who in her age, in her day, and in her chapter, we talk about this, she came of age in a civil rights movement. So she was in grade school when Emmett Till was assassinated, was murdered, eviscerated in Mississippi. And that the pictures of his dead body haunted her and the rest of Black America For the next decades. And it was those pictures that motivated her to eventually, once she could, engage in the civil rights movement in 1966. 1966, she joined SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And um, that's also the same year as the Meredith March, where Stokely Carmichael, her boyfriend actually, um, jumped on the truck and raised his fist and said, Black power, Black power, for the first time. So that... That's my family's story. And then for me, and you talked about recent history, my mom and dad were both products of the civil rights movement and also the black theater, you know, black arts movement after the death of of MLK. And so I was born to those two people who had a very deep connection to their their sense of their history. Um, But I was born in an era, um, in the era of 1969, um, where it was post-civil rights. And um my mom and dad eventually divorced and my mom moved us down to Cape May, New Jersey, which was mostly white. And that's where I found Jesus was in the context of a white evangelical church.
1: That was my next question, actually. Yeah, so yeah. You start you start Freedom Road Podcast. Uh great, great program, by the way. It'll be in the show notes. I was gonna start the same way that you start your your podcast. And and, and if you could share a little bit about your own faith journey.
0: Yeah. So the way that the way that my faith came to be was I was invited to a youth group meeting, uh, circa 1982, um, fall 1982, beginning of the school year, my good friend, Amanda invited me to her youth group. And all I could think was youth group is church is boring. So I'm not going right. So I just kept saying, no, 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 no. And then finally on a whim, cause she just kind of wore me down. I just finally, one time said, okay. And when I got there, I was surprised that this is where all the popular people were. I was like, oh my God, like this was actually, I think that it was Young Life because Young Life does that. It's like an area wide youth group and that's what it was. They called it Y. Um, And I never knew at the time whether it was the letter Y or the word Y, (laughs) but I just kept going and calling it Y, whatever it was, it was Y. And so, but that it was during that year that I started to ask you know deep spiritual questions and and start to have them responded to well it happened to be 1983 and that was also the very same beginning of the religious right movement and this this space down in south jersey was one that was not fully taken over by the religious right yet not at all but it was a conservative and certainly a white christian space as in they saw the world through the lens of whiteness um, and saw the faith through the lens of whiteness. So, therefore, since I got Jesus through them, I saw the world and my faith and Jesus and God through the lens of whiteness. So, my mom and I had major clashes um throughout the 80s and 90s. She really kind of thought these people took you from us, is kind of mm. that's the way she thought of it. Is you know, she really resented this white faith that I had adopted. Um, and I didn't see it as white faith, I saw it as saving faith. And I was like, mom, you need to be saved too. I was telling her you need to, now this is the thing. I remember I became a Christian in 1983. This was also the year that Ronald Reagan was running for president for the second time. It was second run. And um, I was handed a pamphlet while coming out of church one day that told me that Mondale was the antichrist and that if Mondale won, all the children would be rounded up into work camps and um, taken away from their parents. So we have to vote for Reagan, I swear to you. I, and I'm not the only one who saw it I shared it to my sister and made her cry and weep and run to my mom saying you have to vote for Reagan you have to vote for Reagan and she just couldn't stop crying she was like this is gonna we're gonna be taken from you and I was crying my mom was like what have you done like don't bring this stuff into our home like what are you doing and I I really believed it because I trusted the people who gave it to me yeah like anybody else who believes the 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 quote alternative facts that are being Um, pushed through the internet. They're believing the the people who are giving it to them. They have closer proximity to the people who are giving it to them. So it's more trustworthy to them, but it's false. And it's a a time and memoriam tactic used by the right to connect and marry evangelical faith with conservative politics. But ironically, it was not you know, evangelicals in the 19th century were anything but conservative. It was they who were fighting for abolition. Right. Which is like the least conservative thing you could think of at that time. The entire American economy rested on, on slavery. Like the internet is what we rest on today. It would have been equivalent to lobbying for the end of the internet. Can you imagine how ludicrous that would have sounded? And yet it was the evangelicals who were saying because of the ethics of of slavery, we cannot maintain this this particular economy, this slaveocracy, and this is making us dirty as a society. So we must end this. And it was it was their work, and it wasn't just white evangelicals. It actually, it was led by black evangelicals, by um, the black church, the original historic black church, and then white evangelicals came along in the in the mid 1800s. But in in any case, it was evangelicals. And so, but you would never know that today because what happened circa 1983, when I became a Christian, was the takeover of the white evangelical church by the conservative movement. Um, First, the moral
1: moral majority, the the early formation of that.
0: Right. Right. Actually, literally, the moral majority was formed in, I believe, 1983, um, consolidated at that time. A little later, you had the Christian Coalition and Ralph Reed, and um, you had Pat Robertson, and um, you had Jim Baker that came up as well. And um, you just, you had this whole machine. And and behind it was the political machine run by Paul Wyrick, who was the founder of the Heritage right. Foundation, right? So the Heritage Foundation still exists to this day and still serves the same um, purpose that they served back in 1983, which was the the they 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 have one one reason to exist which is to further the conservative movement and it did not yet in the 70s or 60s have intersection with the evangelical church it was wyrick who did that right it was his strategy that did that and unfortunately i came to faith in the midst of that and bought into it whole hog for a good decade maybe a decade and a half and then in the mid 90s my eyes began to open when I was, um, I, my my path took me to Los Angeles and I ended up literally standing in the middle of the LA uprising on the second day at the place of the flashpoint on the second day. And I was introduced the next day when our church came together and began to ask the question, what does God have to say to this? I was introduced to Jeremiah 29, 4, um, which says, seek the peace, the shalom of the city to which I have sent to you. And in that city's peace, you will find your own. So in this Nazarene church that I was working in at the time um, and youth center that I was working in as an as an educational director, um, it was in the middle of that that I discovered the Bible's call for justice and the Bible's call for systemic equity and the Bible's call for the flourishing of all people, including people who look like me, which up to that point, I didn't know. I didn't understand. That God loves people who look like me and not just loves them as in, I love the poor. I love um, the poor children in Africa who have flies in their eyes and bloated bellies, although God does. But it's more than just an Oshigoshi love. It's that God created me and those children to exercise dominion in the world, agency, leadership in the world. That's right. Genesis one. Yeah. 26. That what it means to be human is to be called by God to exercise stewardship of the world. And when I began to put that together, this is um, might, actually later, it's in the two thousands when I started to put this together. Um, when you realize that to be human is that, then you must understand that, well, if that's the way that God created it, then something came in and messed that up because it's not the way we live now. We now live according to uh, a way of living together that assumes the leadership of some kinds of people and the followership or exploitation of others to benefit those who are leading. And that, that came from really from colonized Christianity, starting with Constantine and going forward.
1: I have so many questions now for you. <laughs> I had like five pages of questions. and I'm not getting to any of them. Oh, that's
0: okay. <laughs> now I have
1: more questions. So it's so interesting because you brought up Genesis and Dominion and the mm-hmm. themes. It's so interesting because the, my valley, the valley that I live in, is pretty dominated theologically by John MacArthur. Oh, uh, and if you if yes. you know Johnny Mac, he reads Genesis. He's during-
0: part of that. He was a part of that rise of the religious right. Yeah. I was way into him. I mean, he was really kind of a saint within yeah. the circles that I grew up in in my faith. Yes.
1: But he derives six literal 24-hour days and that's what we should derive from Genesis uh 1 and 2. You're reading I love the very good gospel. That's not it. So, um I'm getting way off track now. But <laughs> that's okay. Ca- ca- can we talk about Genesis specifically yes. Genesis 2? Who wrote it? When was it written? Fill in some of the blanks because we need a different we need a better reading of yeah. Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2?
0: Well, Genesis 1 was written by, the, the big theory that is still held by most scholars is that Genesis 1, actually the whole book of Genesis was written by four separate sets of authors. Right. Um, and Genesis 1, they believe, and I believe, was written by this company of priests that were exiting the Babylonian exile. They were, now if you know the you know Babylonian exile, the Babylonians came in and actually sacked Um, Jerusalem and they sacked um, parts of Israel and they took the people and shipped them to Babylon, which is actually Iraq, right? So they shipped them to that area and said, they held them for 70 years and basically enslaved them and said, you're going to be our slaves. You are the, you are the booty of war. You're the prizes of war. And so you're our slaves. And they told them over that time, you were created to be enslaved. Um, and that's because that was actually their worldview. That's the worldview they had of their own gods, that the gods created humanity to be enslaved to the gods, right? So for 70 years, that's about, what, at least, what, four generations? Um, four, yeah, about four generations, maybe actually even five generations when you count when they were actually having children back then around the age of 13, 14, 15. That, so about five generations are growing up under this mindset that, we were created to be slaves right and so scholars look now at that genesis 1 text and they, they they understand this is not first of all it doesn't take rocket science to understand this is not science because science didn't exist back then <laughs> <laughs> this was written like you know circa 2000 bc right like or in the 1000s bc this was not they were not thinking of things in a way that people thought in the enlightenment period when we had science and we thought in terms of facts and we wanted to know the facts of what exactly happened and um, the scientific method in terms of logical thought that wasn't, it wasn't their concern. They didn't care about what actually happened back then. It wasn't their concern. Like it was the concern in the enlightenment period, their concern in the pre-modern era was what is true. Mm. They would tell stories in order to communicate truth or they would, they would tell Um, Sell poetry, like recite poetry in order to communicate truth that is higher than the thing on the page. So scholars now look at the the construct, the seven-day construct of Genesis 1, the repetition of the word good, tobe, in that text, which is usually used in the context of of poetry. And you have it repeated seven times, which is the Hebrew um, number for perfection. I'm in that text. And on the seventh time, it's tob me'od. It's radical.
1: Very good. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's right. And it's radical goodness. It's overwhelming, abundant goodness. But the thing is, the way that the Hebrews understood goodness is that it was not like the Greeks would have understood it, located inside the thing. They didn't think of goodness as being something that somebody could possess in themselves or a thing could possess. What it, goodness was located, in fact, literally, syntactically, in the sentence, tobe was located as a connector of thoughts. So they thought of Tob as being um, the thing that exists between things. Goodness exists between things. So, is ethical. Goodness is about how we live together. So, the fact that you have in this epic Hebrew poem, good Tob repeated seven times. Is What it's saying is that what God considered ode very good was not that walrus that was made over there, that thing where, that possesses goodness, or that perfect cloud that, that God just made. No, it was the relationships, the relatedness between all creation and God and each other and the earth, that's what was radically good. There was reciprocity between all things. There was integrity between all things. There was truth-telling and justice between all things. All things were provided for, and the relatedness was perfect. In other words, when God called all humanity to exercise dominion um, over the earth, it wasn't to dominate the earth. It wasn't to destroy or extract from the earth. It was to serve the earth. And in fact, you see that word, used in the picture of dominion in genesis 2 the word dominion is not used but when god says takes the human the 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 author of adam yeah and takes adam the human and places in the middle of the garden and says till and keep it those words actually mean serve and protect serve and protect the earth right that's what it looks like to exercise dominion serve and protect
1: you know, what makes so much sense, I read, I was reading about Freedom Road, and at one point you say pretty bluntly, it's not diversity training, but this is where it makes sense and it ties into your theological convictions, is that it's about restoring tov ma'od, restoring shalom among us, among That's being right. a community, being a people together, right?
0: Right, so that all of us can flourish. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely not like your typical diversity DEI training. In fact, we actually also add B to our equation when we do do that, belonging, that right? consulting, belonging, exactly. Um, because what we're looking at is we're looking at radically creating, um, first of all, examining our systems, examining our assumptions about how things should work. Mm -hmm. Um, examining our histories for the ways things have worked and asking the deeper questions of what are the, how have those assumptions and the the structures and the ways that things have worked, how has that caused a break in the relationships? How have these things caused certain groups among us to flourish and others not to? Mm -hmm. And then we call um, the groups that we work with, whether it's a church or uh, international NGO or whoever it is, to ask the deeper questions of how can we then restructure, because we do believe structure matters, because structure structure is the container for what we will do. It actually determines what we can do. Um, so how can we restructure and re, um, reimagine the way things can work in order to create flourishing for all? in our, in our um, shared spaces, whether it's work or home or church or wherever that is, where that would be.
1: So since we're talking about it and you've touched upon this already, what you mentioned NG, non-governmental organizations, you mentioned churches, what other types of organizations does Freedom Road work with? And what, give me a practical sense of what that work looks like.
0: Well, it, we we do work in lots of different ways. Um, our primary thing we do is that we create experiences that great, create common understanding, common um, commitments, and common action. And we do that through consulting with different groups. We do that through trainings that we offer. We do that through um, pilgrimages. It's like that's the most um, highly potent thing we do that creates common understanding and common commitments, common leads to common action. And we also in the last over the COVID, you know, lockdowns, we actually created an institute where we could reach the masses and actually begin to change how people approach their faith, right? Through different webinars that we offered and, and learning opportunities and community building opportunities online. And we're now in the midst of transitioning that into a resource center and focusing our work more more, um, clearly on the consulting work that we're doing. Currently, we have just wrapped um, a large um, contract, and not not really wrapped, we like wrapped the first two phases of a large contract with um, a pillar church here in Philadelphia where I live. And um, this pillar historic white church, Bryn Mawr Presbyterian, has a a 150-year history of of being right here in Philadelphia, and it's only since the 1960s that they began to see that they have a stake in this question of racial equity and racial justice. And they have, they came to us at Freedom Road in order to see how can we do this even more effectively going into our next 150 years. And so we're in the midst of of work with them. We have worked with other groups um, like Friends, Friends Committee for on National Legislation, we worked with them for two years to move their organization, Quaker organization, um, into a more, more equitable and just and inclusive place where all belong in their workplace. They do amazing outward work, but their actual structures were actually working against their desired outcome, which was a place of flourishing. And we helped them to identify the places where they could actually focus their work in order to pull levers and create a more just system and and community. Um, Now we're actually working with the Carter Center. We worked for two years with them, we're actually, sorry, for about a year with them, discerning how could they leverage their history with, um, with President Carter, their heritage, As I'm coming from a a founder that is evangelical, and now out of that, we discerned with them and they then contracted with us to move this forward in their organization, um, that they had the ability to organize and convene evangelical institutions to move forward in the work of truth-telling, to do that that really courageous work of interrogating the stories they tell about themselves and seeking the truth of the, the genealogies of their institutions and asking what, how do their institutions intersect with the things that have happened in our world that have created?
1: <laughs> Is that our friend? Is that the dog?
0: That's my dog. What's the dog's That's name? name. Babe, that's we babe. gotta introduce babe I to the world. Come you. baby. You know what it is? Hold on. You can you can cut. <laughs>
1: no, 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 it's okay. We want to keep it.
0: <laughs> she's not gonna stop because my mom is walking around outside right now, and that's what she's responding to. That's funny. Yeah, okay. I have
1: Charlie hey, Charlie's uh, today's Friday, so Manuel comes. Hey, and whenever Manuel have- comes, Charlie goes crazy. So I have Charlie upstairs.
0: <laughs> it's okay. Good girl. That's good. Good girl, yeah
1: thank you. I'm totally keeping this.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. got to keep, keep it real. got to keep it real. Well, we definitely are keeping it real here. So yeah, babe definitely. Babe wants to have her say in everything I do. So there we go. <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: So, but what I, what I was saying was that, um, you know, so we're right now working with the Carter center to move 13 evangelical institutions forward in a three-year initiative that will work, um, move those institutions forward in the work of, Truth seeking, truth listening, and truth telling. Working from the rubric that's in the back, the last part of the book, Fortune.
1: Okay, so I have a question, and and you've been already you know discussing this in depth. But you know we have a range of listeners uh, to this program. In fact, some folks that listen are Trump supporters, just totally candidly. And I, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to be in conversation with some folks all all across the political spectrum. Uh, religious spectrum. So, yeah, f- what might you say to folks that are, you know, very different from you philosophically, politically? What will it take? Well, let me ask you this way from all the work that you're doing, your academic endeavors, the conversations you're having on Freedom Road podcast, yeah. have you learned anything or come to any uh, epiphanies? About what it will take, as you say, the subtitle of, of your book, Fortune, what it will take to repair what race broke in the world.
0: Yes. I mean, I think that the number one thing that it takes is it will take humility. It will take humility. And I think actually on um, from all of us, I, I think, but but I have to say most of all, from people who have been trained to see the world as they see it and to declare that the way they see the world is the way the world is. The history books were written by white men, generally speaking for a century, for the 20th century, you know, from the start of public education all the way through at least the 1990s, if not actually going into 2000s. It's really in the last, just in the last 20 years that we begin to have history books that are not written by white men and that, are, that challenge the stories that those white men have told about how America became America. For example, one time I was speaking at a conference, um, and I was speaking at this it was actually, I mean, it really may as well have been like a MAGA rally, but it was, bef- it was before MAGA times. It was really much more like a tea party rally. Um, back in the tea party days, it was 2012, um, 2013. And I was speaking from the book that I wrote with a tea partier called left, right in Christ. Mm. And, um, so my, my co-author, D.C. Inez, from King's College, he also spoke, and he actually spoke before me, and he said that there are two ways, two ways for nations to gain wealth. Um, one way is through plunder, and the other is through productivity. And then he made the case that America's wealth was gained through productivity. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. um Hello? Yeah. <laughs> So thankfully I was up next to speak right after him and I'm speaking to this group. I'm the only black person in the whole room. I mean, really, there's probably not another black person in the whole room. Um, almost everybody else is white and most of them are very conservative, not just conservative, but very conservative. They are tea partiers, generally speaking, He, as he was. And I said to them, I said, you know, it's funny because when you say that America gained its wealth through productivity, the first thing I think of is the plunder of the lands of my ancestors. Um, And according to my family story, we are Cherokee and Chickasaw, as well as Creek. And it was the plunder of those lands that gave the settler colonists free territory, literally granted to them by colonial powers, by the kings and queens of Europe. The land that Mary Day had, that, that fortune- Was indentured on, was granted to her by Lord Baltimore. She didn't pay a red penny for it. It was given to her. And how did he have it? He plundered it. They plundered it. The wealth of the United States is traced back to King Cotton. How was King Cotton produced? Through the literal blood and rape of my ancestors. So, you know, you can come at this with your theories, but my actual body tells another story. Mm. The DNA in my body is the evidence of a whole nother story. And so it takes humility and courage to want to know and see truth, to bow to truth. Um, The truth that is told from the underside of colonization, the underside of enslavement, the underside of Jim Crow, the underside of mass incarceration, the underside of eminent domain, the underside of the drug wars, the underside of failed and broken and actually intentionally broken immigration policy, where now, right now. Um, many of the children that were separated from from their parents under the last administration's rule, those children were not sent home. They were not sent back to their native lands. They were sent to work in factories. Factories Mm -hmm. around the country. And only now is that beginning to come out that you have 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds working 12, 15, 16-hour days in factories that are, and they're doing lead letting work that is incredibly dangerous. And this is something that we fought against at the turn of the 20th century. We are now literally 100 years from those labor laws that protected children's rights. And also from um, the rise of the liberal church that came up under Rauschenbusch literally to proclaim that the gospel says we must protect the dignity of children and the dignity of human beings in labor. Right. So we're 100 years from now. And yet now we have immigration policy that is, you know, happens to benefit our corporations by what? Providing them again,
1: mm.
0: again with low cost to no cost labor. Yeah. So there is a straight line from fortune to that 12 year old child trapped in that, in that factory today, the straight line is the modus operandi of wealth building in America is through the exploitation of imported labor. Whether that imported labor is the enslaved labor of Africans or the after Civil War imported labor of Chinese people who were brought in to literally fill the same slave cabins that Black folks had just fled from um, in the turn uh, right after the Civil War in Texas and throughout the Deep South, or whether it's from the imported labor of immigrants who are undocumented and because they are undocumented, they can be exploited. Within that 100 mile, isn't it convenient? 100 mile border red zone where immigrants cannot get past. They can't. If they come into America, they can't get out of that 100 mile checkpoint, checkpoint, checkpoint for 100 miles. But they don't. They don't send them back. What they do is they send them into the fields to provide the next iteration of slaves in America.
1: Wow. We covered so much ground today, and there is so much more to discuss. Uh, The thrust of of this program is figuring out how to have these conversations, but to specifically have them across our differences. I know in my endeavors, um, I have certain friends uh, from, like I said, from different religious backgrounds or no religion at all. Uh, certainly a, a broad range. For, my kids went to a Christian school. I'm living in the Valley of Johnny Mac. I'm mm-hmm. constantly coming in um, contact and and have relationships with mm-hmm. uh, folks across a, a, a wide array of, of political views. So when I'm talking to my friends about these difficult issues, how it's the TPNR question, talk politics and religion, not killing each other. How can we do it better? How can I do it in such a way? Because my... Part of it is really for me. It's an exercise for me because oftentimes being a you know a Jersey, you know, a kid from Jersey, my my approach is like I just want to rhetorically punch him in the face. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> well, hey, I understand that. I really do. Because honestly, because what they're saying and the way that they're voting is really literally impacting people's lives. Yeah. Um, and and the the livelihood and well being, like literally the health and well being and futures of whole generations of families in America. So I mean. I think that the way we do it is literally by talking, by telling our stories. Mm. Um, I just came earlier this week, I was at um, the council on foreign relations and every year they have a gathering of, I think it's invitation only. So I was like, Oh, I got invited. That's so cool. I mean, I've been, I've, I've gone several times, but I didn't know I was going to be invited this year. And I was, Um, and uh, they were, they, the last panel was on peace building and of course, most of its foreign relations, right? So most of their focus is overseas. It's it's international and it's, you know, oh, how we, we need peace building in this area and how are we gonna do peace building in Ukraine? And how are we gonna do peace building with Russia? And how are we gonna do peace building, you know, Israel and Palestine and go to... Well, my question was, hey, you know, in America, our, our elections are actually now um, not free and fair. In fact, they've never been free and fair. Um, we have people who are needing to monitor our elections. Um, we have our own judicial system has become corrupted. We have violence, mass violence in our streets every single day of the year, several times per day. Um, we we are the ones who need peace builders now. And when you trace it back to the genesis of, not the genesis, but I would say like the fork in the road, one of the forks in the road where we had a choice to make, one of those places was in 1983. When um, and you could actually trace it to 1980, whether or not we were going to choose Ronald Reagan as our president or Jimmy Carter, right? The the peaceful president who believed in shalom, Jimmy Carter, or Ronald Reagan, who actually made his very first the very first thing he did when coming into president in his presidency was to go to Bob Jones University in order to support their case before the U.S. Supreme Court, supporting the right of of white christian universities to maintain segregated space right that's what ronald reagan did right wow. so that was his first act as president was to do that um, and he declared his he declared his run in 1979 by going to philadelphia mississippi um the place where the three civil rights workers were buried in an earthen dam in the summer of 1964 and he went there to declare that he was going to become president and didn't have any civil rights workers with him. Instead, he was there to proclaim he was on the side of the segregationists. Wow. Right. Right. So so at that point in 1980, our it's one of the times when our nation had a choice. Which way are we going to go? Are we going to go toward the way of flourishing for all, or are we going to go toward the way of securing the flourishing or at least the the false flourishing of some white Americans at the expense of everyone else and we chose we chose for white people to flourish and that was the 80s right that was greed is good that was the the greed is good 80s and that's what got us eventually to the economic meltdown and and to Trump and to all of the things so what does it take now I'm um, at this I stood up in that last session and I asked you know in light of the the deep division in our nation after the rise and in the midst of the rise of authoritarian rule, which traces itself back to um, the rise of the anti-abortion movement in 1983 and and throughout the 1980s. How How do we begin to talk about, how do we peace build within American politics, within Americans who are political, as in we are all political beings, we all have to, or at least are called to vote in a democracy. How do we do that? And what they said, they said, I think the most profound thing, it was um, Dr. Gobin, Steve Gobin, who said, we think too much in terms of winning and losing. And when we think that, we're actually thinking in a false paradigm because honestly, no one ever actually wins and no one actually ever loses. Um, The winner the person who thinks they won will be surprised within a few years when the the quote loser really just comes back and has come back a few years later. And that's, what's, that's the cycle. It's the cycle of domination and retribution. Domination, retribution. Domination, comeback, payback, right? Well, how do we get out of that cycle? Dr. Gobin said. Dr. Gobin said, it's a matter of listening to each other's stories. It's a matter of building the relationships. Um, We have to build the relationships. We have to begin to listen. So that's a lot actually of what Freedom Road does in order to try to shrink the gap between our narratives. That's what Freedom Road podcast does is is it, it's kind of inviting everybody to listen in on these conversations they wouldn't normally have access to that's what we do on our pilgrimages that give you the opportunity to actually walk in the shoes of the other and and allow their story to become a part of your story as you as you retrace their steps and and consider the world through their eyes and it's what we do in our consulting which usually has some combination of all of the above um, as part of it yeah so what will it take? It will take humility, the humility to know that I don't have everything I need. I need you. I need to know what the perspective and the story of the other in order to to understand better and in order for us to live better as a society. And it will take the discipline to listen.
1: Amen. Amen. I almost hesitate to ask you this Second to last question, which is, do you have any questions for me?
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, actually, I do have a question for you. Okay. You know, as a person of, of Jewish descent who has embraced Jesus as your Messiah in an age where we are seeing the rise in authoritarianism around the world in America, and it's led everywhere by white evangelicals. Um, I mean, it really is true. It just really, you know, you just can't deny that. In America, it's been led by white evangelicals largely through the anti-abortion movement. And then you can see it in Brazil. You can see it in Hungary. You can see it even in Russia. Um, although Russia is an, is a secular state, um, you see that there is, um, there's like a friendship that has been developed between Russia and that element here in the U.S., um, and now you see the rise in authoritarianism even in Israel. And I would say that in in the way that that Israel has um, interacted with Palestine, particularly Palestinians in the West Bank, you can see authoritarianism obviously with the building of the wall and the the xing out of vote. there's no they don't have the ability to vote. they're literally kind of non-citizens. But now that's bleeding into the politics the general politics of Israel. How do you think of your Jesus faith in this context?
1: You struck upon a chord that has been my greatest challenge since even before I became a Christian. The biggest stumbling block for me before I finally, you know, became a Christian was the knowledge that the men swinging swords and literally beheading my baba's neighbors in the shtetl in uh were men wearing crosses on their chests Mm. um and you know even fast forward to today the first passion play at the church i was going to um seeing the depiction first of all to conflate the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I'm like, y'all don't know who you're talking about. Like <laughs> they're not the same. They're kind of at each other's throats, and you're depicting them as if they're the same character. And then could you could you just not with the prosthetic nose to make a caricature out of these characters? Wow. The Jews, Ooh. you know. So wow. the um not so subtle anti-Semitism that runs, and, and sometimes it is uh Seemingly benign, but it cuts like a knife when I'm sitting in a Bible class and and somebody says something like, Hey, why do all you Jews vote Democrat? I'm like, first of all, you lost me at why do all you? (laughs) You know. So throughout the greatest challenge to my faith um, and, and my theological convictions is seeing what primarily defines these church communities that I've been a part of, whether it's my kids' school. Or the the churches that we were going, we, we found a better church, <laughs> fortunately. But um, that it, it, it's not the theological convictions that brought me to Rabbi Jesus, mm-hmm. Rabbi Yeshua. Mm-hmm. It's it's these political, social strains that that of toxicity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I I have to constantly fight against that. But mm-hmm. you know what brings me back, the compass that brings me back is like I said, Rabbi Yeshua. Yeah. You know, the, the thing Brown, of,
0: Brown, yeah, Rabbi Yeshua.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Who, I'm sorry, again to say this, yeah. who existed in the context of the Roman Empire, which who believed the Greek philosophers who basically understood who understood the world in terms of hierarchies of human belonging and had crafted a world where their their belief was that if you were like them, you were fully human. If you were not like them, you were not fully human. And part of what meant being like them was white. White men, not even women. Women were not understood to be fully human. Yeah. So when you think about Rabbi Brown, Rabbi Yeshua being being crucified by white supremacist Rome, that's what you're talking about there.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the most influential talks, I said in, in a couple of his talks, uh, I, we might have talked about this. Jay Cameron Carter, he used to be uh, a prophet at Duke Divinity. He's at Indiana now. Indiana, where some of your family had some history. Um, is his... At, the, the concept of race, tracing back the concept of race yeah. and what I see, even, even talk about benign, even the way some of the folks I went to Bible study with for, for years and years, the way they think of heaven is much more uh, a product of Rome, a much more a product oh, of Socratic yes. thinking. And yes. and not the not biblically based. Like I read my Bible and I see Tikkun Olam. I see where we're headed and what the story is going towards. So that's what brings me back is Rabbi Yeshua ben Yosef, who who I can imagine. You know, I can imagine myself at that time going back to my parents' house and saying, "I think this Yeshua may be Mashiach." Wow. <laughs> I, I think he may be the one and having similar conversations to the ones that I actually had to have with my father about Mm -hmm. why I think this, you know, why I think the, the new Testament is so theologically profound that I have to change the course of my religious life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you've really struck on a chord for me and, and talk about ambivalence. You know uh, the, the, my, my first uh, pastor, Pastor Tom, used to say that the most read version of the Bible is the believer's behavior version <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know and wow. um th- th- it just I can't get around it it just gives me great great ambivalence but um I do read my Bible every day uh and um that that's what brings me back
0: you yeah, know and I, and I think I mean if you were to trace okay so what's the what is the Christianity that you inherited from that you know from the, the politics right the the Christ, the politics of Christianity that you inherited, it was a Constantinian Christianity. Yeah. It was yeah. a colonized Christianity, and so the work that we're really having to do now it is the work of the whole church now. Um, back at the the 500 anniversary of the of the Protestant um, Reformation, I was interviewed for this documentary. I still don't even know if it ever came out. I think it probably did, <laughs> but I was interviewed, and they asked me, you know, what would you say for the next 500 years? What is the work of the church for the next 500 years? And I said, without um, missing a beat it just came to me work in the next 500 years is to decolonize
1: decolonize the church
0: right the faith the church the scripture our read of the scripture um because i mean it was it was basically you had a, a brown um indigenous colonized people serially enslaved whose faith was captured by Constantine, shaped, reshaped in the image of Constantine and Constantinian um, imperialism. And then from forevermore, um, Orthodoxy was determined by Constantinian imperial structures, Um, you know, going from, you know, the the Pope and, and, you know, the Vatican, Vatican City, which is basically like, Another iteration of Rome, literally in Rome, um, all the way to um, the ways that we have centered orthodoxy in Europe. Like the judges of orthodoxy are now in Europe, when this is not a European faith. So it, though I see the work that you're doing as being um, vital, and it's work we all have to do right now.
1: Mm. Well, you just opened up a whole new can of worms. We have to have you back just to talk about, I mean, I could do a whole series on what it means to decolonize the church. Um, yes. And uh, yeah. So, but, but before we go really important, how can we follow you find more info, info about uh, freedom road, uh, your kitchen table conference, like there's so much, so many places where we can uh, come in contact and, and uh, benefit from all the work that you're contributing. How can we find you?
0: Well, we are um, online at lisasharonharper.com and freedomroad.us. So you can find out more about Freedom Road at freedomroad.us. And it's kind of like a, a a bread basket that holds it all is at lisasharonharper.com. You can connect with me on all the socials there and all the rest. Um, Twitter, Lisa S. Harper. Um, Instagram, again, Lisa S. Harper. Freedom, sorry, Facebook. um, I'm at Lisa Sharon Harper, both my page and my profile. And I would just love, I'd love to um, to get to know your audience more and, and respond to questions. And yes, um, it used to be every Friday night. Now it's going to be once a month on Friday nights. This time it's um, on May 26th is going to be our next Kitchen Table Conversation. Um, and uh, Kitchen Table Conversation is simply a time we come together on Instagram Live and we kind of debrief the, the week with each other. And sometimes I have guests on to come to my kitchen table and talk with me about stuff like this. Um and at other times it's just me kind of you know spouting about well this is what I think about what happened this week and what do you think that kind of thing so it's kind of fun it's a fun oh space. man
1: that's awesome and Substack don't forget Substack
0: oh yes <laughs> of course yes and Patreon hello yeah so yes yeah. so Substack and Patreon Substack is a place where you can get my writing once a month and also the writing of um freedom road writers we have a global writers group that um, comes together every week and writes together at freedom road and they are amazing and it's become this fabulous community and we highlight a lot of that writing on our freedom road sub stack um but the truth is is my sub stack and please come subscribe um, become a, sub- a paid subscriber and you also get special treats um that are also offered to our patreon patrons um from our podcast you get like extra tidbits backstage tidbits from the podcast
1: awesome good stuff well this was long overdue and and we're gonna have to do it again real estate because i didn't even get to any of my questions we just
0: oh my gosh yeah
1: so uh this is great i i appreciate your time and i appreciate my friendship with you and uh learning so much uh as as uh jack nicholson once said in a movie you make me a better man
0: <laughs> <laughs> i love that movie that's so yeah. I'm honored, thank you. Yeah, thank you,
1: so much. you bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about talking politics and religion not killing each other. We are easier to recommend than ever. Uh, it's politicsandreligion.us. By the way, I stole the dot .us from you. It's shamelessly oh, stole it. Yeah, politicsandreligion.us. You can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Cory with an E and S as in Sam, at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week.